Looks like people were a little thrown off. They're like, wait a minute, that was two songs. What happened to the third one? We want to keep you honest. Uh, we'll sing praises to God a little bit more in just a moment. Uh, good morning, family. That was healthy enough. My name is Michael Darbuz. I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors of this great faith family. And with all honesty, my heart is full with excitement and expectation, anticipation of what is getting ready to happen in this space in the next hour. And I would also be remiss if I didn't share with you that my heart has been broken and very heavy uh, as of yesterday. I had spent the past week in Psalm 104. You can turn there at your leisure if, uh, if you like. And just in absolute awe of God. There are at least five sermons waiting in Psalm 104, and I have time for one, so there's already that tension. But even more is just I've been in awe of the beauty in the words of the psalmist, the splendor and the majesty of God. And yesterday I went to an event and it was just like that was the culmination. And I wasn't expecting it, but the Lord just gripped my heart. And my heart was broken, I believe, for the things that break the heart of God. And so yesterday morning at 8.10, I was late. I went out to uh, the Bear, was it Bear Creek? What is it? I'm, I'm still new. Yeah, Bear Branch, right? You all know it. The sports complex. At 8.10, I arrived, I was again a little bit late. The game started at eight. I have a morning routine uh, that I didn't want to break. And as I rolled in, tardy, there were three parking lots that I had to pass because they were full. And I went to the overflow parking lot that was filling up fast. And then I walked over to the field and I just looked out and any other time, I, I wouldn't have thought anything of it, but for some reason my heart was just broken. And as I just sat with that for a moment, just felt like the Holy Spirit was showing me something. Over the past three years, last year, I've been preparing for church planting. And then the previous two years, I was a pastor of a small but growing ministry. And we've been talking about times for church service. Initially, in Durham, it was a second service, potentially, which I am not a fan of. I do not that lightly. I'm not a fan of two services. It's a lot to preach one, but that was fine. It was a part of the conversation. And in that conversation, there were things stated that you don't start a service at eight. That's too early. Nobody would come. And there were other times that you don't start a service. There was essentially, apparently, an optimal time for gathering together as a body of believers. And so I've been having these conversations for the past three years. And then as I walk out to the field, you can't see it because it was a little bit further away, but there are seats of all sizes, and there are tiny seats. That was the younger field, so there were kids, I don't know, two, three years old, just out there scampering around. There were strollers, families just gathered. And what the Holy Spirit placed on my heart is that people will rise early and make all the sacrifices they need to serve the God that they worship. And just broken over that. Because people were out at their worship service giving praise to the God of sports. 
And I, I just could not reconcile it myself. I said, I'm not going to share that because I don't want to come across as looking to be condemning towards anyone. But I've also had conversations that 10 o'clock is hard because it's tough to get the family out. And so to get to service on time at 10 is tough. But there were hordes of families at 8 o'clock in the morning. They didn't arrive at 8. I was late at 8.10. They were there 7.30, 7.45, and they weren't getting paid. They paid to come and praise their God. And they were content. And I just wonder, Lord, where are we as a body of believers? Many of us may find attention here. And my heart is not to beat the body at all. So I had a desire not to share this. The Lord had been working with me for the past 20 plus hours. Much prayer and a few conversations. Even I was like, Lord, I just don't, I don't think that that's going to be healthy. And the picture just went up like two minutes ago because I didn't want to share. I was like, I don't know how that would be life-giving. But we can't run from the truth. And so while the desire is not to beat the body, I felt like the Lord impressed on my heart to present him to the body. And if we can get a right picture of the grandeur, the greatness of God, I'm not saying that soccer at 8 a.m. is the devil at all. I'm not saying that participating in sports or athletics is an idol. No. But if we elevate these things to the status of or even slightly below where it becomes a distraction, then just like we read in the Old Testament, then this becomes that silver, that gold, that wood that we now worship. And we cannot say that we see God rightly, but we would complain about being in service before 10, but we would be willing to pay to play at 8 a.m. without a complaint and then stay all day. So my heart was broken. And my prayer was, Lord, I don't know what to do with that. And what I simply heard the Lord say was, read the word. Present me to the people. And so in just a moment, I'm going to read over Psalm 104. But before I do, I'm going to ask you to prayerfully consider after we pray to keep your eyes closed while I'm reading over the psalm. And allow the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do to captivate your mind and your heart with the grandeur and the greatness of God. And I'm just going to do a slow, maybe emphatic read of Psalm 104. And only because I feel like the Lord placed on my heart something to share with the body will I not say amen and sit down, but that's what I feel. Because this word, I believe, is where the life change is going to come. If you have a challenge closing your eyes, please do not feel obligated to do so. You can read along. And if that's challenging for you, Michael, can you pull up this other picture? I call this psalm the seaside psalm. I'll share a little bit more maybe in just a moment. But this is a part of our creator's great creation. I believe the psalmist may have been by the seashore. That's conjecture. He could have been in his bedroom. I don't know. But We'll see in just a moment why I call it the seaside psalm. 
But if you need a picture, just a thought of how great and mighty God is, who did that? And how does it know where to sit? So may that be a picture that resonates in your mind while your eyes are closed or as I'm reading. But before we open up Psalm 104, I ask that you would pray with me, that you would pray for me, that the Holy Spirit would open our minds and hearts to the, grand, the greatness of our God. Father, we come humbly before your throne of grace, recognizing that in our finite creation that we could not begin to capture the greatness that is you. But if you would, Father, for even a moment, just give us a glimpse of your glory, a hint of your holiness, that we would realize that you really are greater, that there is nothing that compares that our hearts and minds would be open to your greatness, that we would worship you and you only, that our lives would be fixed to submit and surrender to the creator of the universe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, oh, Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted, in them the birds build their nest. The stork has her home in the fir trees. 
The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May the meditation, may my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and it's good all by itself. Holy Spirit, do what only you can. The psalmist opens up with his position. And then he shares his premise. And then he makes three points. And then he closes with his position. If this were to be a persuasive psalm, for those who know the art of debate, you would recognize the error that the psalmist made. You never open up a debate with your position. You lose your audience because you don't seem objective. You state your premise, and then you clearly make your points. And if you do a thorough job, you can hand the mic over to somebody who may completely disagree with you, but they would know exactly the conclusion that should be made based on the premise and the points. But this is not a persuasive psalm. This is a personal psalm of praise from an individual who knows their creator, who has a personal relationship with a great and mighty God. And so the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul. This word bless means to kneel. The word soul means breathing creature. So it's communicating life. 
what the psalmist is communicating here in this opening line. He's commanding his life to take a knee before his supreme creator. Lay down life. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And he states the reason why he would command his life to lay down before his creator. His premise, O Lord, my God, you are very great. This is my God. This is not some impersonal being that's far off, that doesn't know me. This is my creator. And he is very great. Now, I have very few pet peeves, maybe two, if I'm really thinking hard. But one that's quickly climbing on the charts is the overuse of the word super. I don't know when it started. It seems to be over the last five years. It's no longer good enough to say that I had a good day. I had a super good day. Michael, how you feeling? I'm feeling super great. Is great not enough? It's not, apparently. So we just use super for everything. Now we're going to have to add another adjective. How you feeling? Well, we overuse super, so now it's got to be super duper good. Whatever it may be, but I'm starting to just get a little bit, just stop using super. Good has got to be good enough. But here, that's exactly what the psalmist does. There aren't enough adjectives to speak to the grandeur and the greatness of God. So the psalmist says, oh Lord, my God, you are super duper great. You are very great. I could do it no justice if I tried to capture it in a word, in a phrase, even in a life. So the best I can do, you're super. You're super great. And now the psalmist goes from stating his position and his premise. This is my God who's super great to making three points. And I pray that you would be patient with me. And I ask for your pardon as I do absolutely no justice to this song. But in the few fleeting moments that we have, I pray that the Holy Spirit will touch our hearts. It's three points. Who God is. God is king. God is creator. And God is keeper of his creation. And so first the psalmist speaks to God who is king. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. This usage of clothing yourself with splendor and majesty, this was language that would have been used for a king when they put on their royal robe. But the psalmist is using it in a context of divine splendor and majesty. So the clothing, the royal robe that God puts on is light. I'm saying you just have to, for a moment, allow your imagination to open up a little bit here because the psalmist is trying as best as he can to paint a picture of a God that really could never possibly be captured in words. You put on light like I put on my shirt in the morning. You are king over all and the psalmist isn't making something up he's simply affirming what God says about himself Isaiah 66 really verse 1 and 2a but I just felt like we shouldn't leave any half of verse 2 off 
So we're going to read Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. This is what God says of himself. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The Lord says of himself, the heaven is my throne. I'm sitting on it. In the earth, I prop up my heels. It's my footstool. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. It's the right position to command my soul to lay down in the presence of the one who created all. And the psalmist tries to give us a little picture of just how king God is. And so he uses this imagery of things that we could never contain. He says, God, you control. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. Lord, you make water your firm foundation. You go ahead and try and build your house on water. And I'm going to tell you that's a bad idea, and you're about to find out in just a few minutes. But Lord, your chamber, just place them in on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. It would also be equally as bad an idea for you to try to sit on a cloud and go for a ride. But God, you make the clouds your chariot. And he just gets even sillier. He rides on the wings of the wind. The wind is his horse. But he's not done. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Not only do you control that which man can't contain, but you also control chaos. This winds pictures a tornado-like force, flaming fire. You say, hey, excuse me, tornado, I got a message. Yeah, just go ahead and run that on over there. Flaming fire, just real quick uh, before you're done. Just go ahead and take that thought. I just need to share that. This is the king who's in full control over all creation. Who is he? My God is king of kings and Lord of lords. But he goes on to say that he's also creator and keeper of his creation. And in this musical arrangement, the psalmist has three movements that he builds on to try to communicate the majesty of his master. And he looks to creation because it's the best picture that you and I can get to possibly be able to even tickle our minds with the idea of just how great God is. And so he attributes three things to God as creator. And it's really, in essence, everything. In verse 5, he set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You created the earth. Because you created it stable. Verse 19, he made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. He created the heavenly bodies, the moon and the stars. And then verse 24, in wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. He created all living things. 
Lord, you created the earth, the heavenly bodies, and everybody. And not only did you create it all, but you're also keeper, sustainer of all your creation. And so the psalmist begins to unpack these three movements. You're creator of earth. And as creator of earth, you're keeping the earth. And I can't flip over to it now, but in your time, go look at Genesis 9. The psalmist gives a nod to the covenant that the Lord made with all living creatures. He says, you laid out the deep as a garment, just like you might have made your bed this morning. Some of you might not have made your bed this morning. It's a good practice. It's a great discipline. But if you didn't, no shame or guilt. But if you did make your bed, you'd have to stretch out the sheet. God, you just covered the whole earth with water like I covered my bed with a sheet. And that speaks to the judgment that came because of sin. But then at your rebuke, the waters went to where you had told them to go. And then you set this bow in the sky so that we could remember that that'll never happen again. He gives a nod, and it's as though to build on that God is in control of chaos just a little bit more. right? Because what seemingly had destroyed the earth, you controlled and put it in its rightful place. And now, because you are God, look at what he says, that the earth is satisfied with the works of the Lord. From his lofty abode, you water the mountains. Wait, I thought the water destroyed everything. But because God in his covenant-keeping self makes a promise that he'd never do it again, instead of having PTSD when you see a drop of rain fall from the sky, you're like, oh, Lord, look at the rain. It's just water in the mountains so lovely. Now, you imagine just a day removed from the flood, you don't think that way when you see a cloud. You see a cloud like, oh, man, the ark is, is too far. Guys, it's over. It's a cloud. We can't make a run for it. No, but because you see the bow, you don't even flinch when you see a cloud. God is good, and he controls chaos. So now that which once destroyed can now be used to bring life because you are a sustainer of your creation. You provide grass from the earth. You provide food from the earth for man. You're just taking care of everything. You're still keeping your earth. Man cultivates, but God creates. God, you sustain your earth and provide from the earth that you created. And because of that, it should never be moved because he created it. Keep it moving, Michael. 19, he made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows it's time for setting. And because he said it that way, there's a time for everything. The king of the jungle knows when it's time to go and lay down because the king of kings, the sun is coming up. Your time is done. And the lion does not roar back. It goes and lays its happy self down. And then man gets up. Because it's God who determines the season and the flow. And no one can adjust it. Thank God for electricity. But you find out real quick during a freeze how much you need the sun. And Lord, please shine just a little bit of light. You are not in control. Don't let that switch fool you. God created the heavenly bodies. And he is the one who's keeping it in place. 
And then the psalmist just has a moment as he's considering the grandeur of God. And this is why I call it the seaside psalm. Oh, Lord, how manifold are your works. He's just looking out like you've made all of this. Look at the sea. And there goes the ship. And he sees this giant whale in Leviathan. I mean, he just is mind blowing. Wow. Look at all you have done. Just breathtaking. And that's how we should look out at creation. Breathtaking. Like, look at that tree. I didn't do that. Oh, I'm cultivating it, but God created it. How do you get that big thing out of that seed? You didn't do that. God, look at what you have done. I can't even contain it right now. I'm about to hurt myself trying to think about this thing and trying to communicate it. I mean, this is God. You do not keep yourself. Lord, if you give breath, something's going to come to life. If you take it away, I don't care how long you try to hold it. Done. Over. Cancel account. You're not coming back. Like, God is the one who's keeping your life. You can't even blink without God's hand on your life. You don't know how oxygen comes in and goes out. God's doing that. You're not making your heart beat. God is doing that. When we understand the greatness of God, there's only one position that we take. Life lay down before the Lord who loves me and who I love. This is my God. And he's worthy of my worship. And that's what the psalmist communicates so clearly. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. Lord, you reign. You rule over all that you have created. And what is that? Earth, moon, stars, me. Rule over it all. For how long? Forever. You rule. You reign. Because I know you. And who else would I want to govern over my life but you? I lay down my life. And so the psalmist says in verse 33, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. Now we make a mistake often. And I won't spend too much time on it because Zach unpacked it a little bit some time ago. But worship is not singing. Singing is a response that's a part of my worship. But what makes this a worshipful, worshipful response is not that the psalmist says, I will sing, but it's as long as I live. I will praise your name, is what he's saying, for the rest of my life. And then in the next section, he says, I will make music to my God as long as I have my being. The beauty in this statement is he makes no qualifier for it. It's not if you do this then I will praise you. No, your king, your creator, your keeper of your creation, because of who you are, I will lay down my life. Because of who you are, not what I want you to do, not what I think you should do, but because of who you are, my God, I will sing praise as long as I live. You don't have to do another thing. You've given me a glimpse of your glory, and that was enough for me to praise you for a lifetime. The psalmist lands and he closes out the way he opened up. Bless the Lord, O oh my 
soul. Kneel life before the king, the creator, and the keeper. The psalmist would say that this is the right response to the one who has a right picture of the greatness and the grandeur of God. But the scriptures don't just tell us that this is a right response. The scriptures let us know that this is our reasonable response. And Jesus goes as far as to say that this is your required response. John chapter 4. Jesus is having a conversation with a woman by a well. And after sharing with her her life story, without her giving any insight, she perceives that Jesus is a prophet. And her first question is to try to put to rest a long-going debate of who is worshiping God the right way. This is where we'll pick up the conversation, where we'll see that Jesus doesn't just touch and agree with the psalmist, but he says worship is the required response for the one who sees God rightly. Verse 19 through 24. The woman said to him, to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say, as a Jew, in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And I just got to read these last two verses, 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah, the anointed one, is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm not just a mouthpiece of God. I am God. (laughs) The woman at the well had the right response. You read the rest of the story. I pray that we'll leave here with the right response as well. Jesus answers her question in a way that would be shocking to anybody that understands the conversation. Where do we worship? Jesus, as a Jew, the woman even understands that you say in Jerusalem where the temple of God is. And you go back and read over First and Second Kings and see when Solomon built the temple and the response there. And Jesus says, not it. The hour is coming and is now here where it's not in Jerusalem, at the temple. Oh, that would borderline be a blasphemous statement if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus was saying it. Nor do you know what you worship. We know what we worship. But he's saying that it's not even in what you know. It's your response. The hour has come and is now here when the true worshipers 
will worship God in spirit and in truth. And Jesus says that these are the kind of worshipers that the Father is seeking. True worshipers. The Father is looking, is desiring true worshipers. This word true is translated real, authentic. We would say genuine. The word worship, it sounds very similar to the word bless. I go to bow my knees to fill in the blank. You could translate it as a phrase, but if we understood it properly in the Greek, you could say that it means to lay and kiss the ground when prostrating before a superior. So this word worship paints a picture of someone who lays down face on the ground before someone that they acknowledge is superior. This is the kind of person that Jesus says God the Father is looking for, true worshipers, people who will really lay down. But he doesn't just say the posture. He also says what you are to bring and how you are to bring it. The true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. This word spirit is communicating the soul. It's the power by which a human being thinks, feels, decides, or wills. The life. So the true worshiper worships in spirit. You bring your life to the Lord. In what way? In spirit and truth. This word truth is divine truth revealed to a person. So it's the reality of God based on how he reveals himself to his people through his word. So you don't just bring it any way you want. You bring your life the way that God says. The scriptures would put it this way in Romans. I bring my life, my body, I present it as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Not in my opinion, holy and acceptable unto God. God, you decide how it looks for me to bring my life in a way that's acceptable to you. And I will lay down my life before you as my supreme superior. I will lay down my life the way that you call me to. I will prostrate myself face to the ground, the most humbling state that I could put myself in. If I could, I'd go even a little bit lower, but the ground is stopping me. But no, I'd go lower for you, God, if I could. My whole life. I lay before you. No reserves. You have all of me. That is the picture of a true worshiper, someone that commands their life to lay down. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. True worshipers worship in spirit and truth. But listen, this is not out of obligation. It may be required, but it's not demanded if you don't have a relationship with the Lord. The psalmist didn't say, Lord, you make me. And so if I have to, I'll lay down my life. No, he says, oh, Lord, my God, you are my God. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul. Oh, Lord, my God, you are very great. It's a personal relationship. The true worshiper worships in spirit and truth. You know who God is. If you don't know who he is, then you will not lay down before him as your supreme superior. Now, if he threatens your life and you're scared, maybe. But God's not threatening your life to come and be a true worshiper. He reveals his love to us. And then you choose. Will you lay down for a love 
that would lay down his life for you? And what do you say? Lord, I would, but it's too early in the morning. You have to see God rightly. If you see him rightly, the things that we call sacrifices, they're not sacrifices. I may have to give up some time on the soccer field. But I mean, think about it. Who is it that says gather together and worship me? I didn't make that up. I'm not telling you that you should gather as a body of believers to praise the true and living God and to hear the word of God so that you can be built up in the faith. God made that up. Listen, I'm treading on thin ice, but I'm trying to be as gentle as I can. But if we don't talk about it, then we're going to continue to drift off and we're going to think that we have the power of God, but it's merely a shell. It's not God and the God of sports. No, some of you need to lay sports down. Right? Because we're so busy. Right? Eight o'clock in the morning, all day Saturday, and then all day Sunday. And no complaint. But if we have an 8 a.m. service, where are you going to be? And I'm not saying that you wouldn't be here. I'm just, you just need to answer that. Where are you going to be? I don't know. Maybe you would be here. But if you would get up and like, oh, I really don't feel like going, but I have to go. I don't care if it's 10 to 5 p.m. You get to. You hear what I'm saying? You get to come into the presence of the creator of the universe. How dare us think for one second that there is a complaint in our soul to come to the one who satisfies your soul and holds your life together and to walk away and say, I did you a favor, God. Get out. I'm not saying this. I'm just saying like if that's your attitude. <laughs> like that's what I would say. Get out. You don't have to be here. I don't need you. He's the one holding the earth together. We do him no favors. He's doing us a great blessing and benefit to be able to see his glory, just to taste it. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, if I showed it all to you, son, you'd die. But I'll just let you see a little bit of my backside. And that's enough to cause your whole face to light up to where you got to cover it with a cloth. Lord, I don't even want to see that much. If you could just give me just a hint of a flavor. I mean, just a touch. This is like, oh, I think I smell something. You know, I just want to just get close enough. Where I don't die, but where I'm blown away. Because if I can get there, then giving up these things don't feel like I'm giving up. I get to hand over nothing that is going to be good to me. To grab a hold of the only one who could satisfy me. Where will you be at 10 a.m. next week? 9.55. Where should we run to? Right? We shouldn't leave here running thinking about the game, thinking about the meal, thinking about all the other things. We are in the presence of the holy. Sean just read the scripture that said the seraphim cover their face. Or was it the cherubim? 
all the angels, you know, the one with the six wings. They had to cover their face with their wings, cover their feet with their wings, and then they had to hold themselves up with the other two. I was like, didn't you have six so that you could fly? No, they had six, so two they can cover their face, two they can cover their feet, and the other two they can travel because they could not be in the presence of the holy. These are angels, and they had to cover their eyes. Oh, Lord, please show us your glory. Show us your glory so that we can stop thinking that there's something else that might help us to be satisfied, that there's something else that might keep us. Listen, I believe the Spirit of God is in this place, and I believe that God is real. I believe there's a word that the Holy Spirit is speaking to each of our hearts, what we need to hear and what we need to wrestle with. And I encourage you to wrestle well. Wrestle well and then let go. Let it go. You know what it is. There can be no other God but the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Nothing else will satisfy. We cannot give our worship to anything else. We either lay it all down for God or we don't lay down all the way. And that's not true worship. True worship is to prostrate myself. Kiss the ground when prostrating myself before a superior. Just because I see it in my head. I'm going to close out this time the way I see it. And I want to challenge you to join me in your heart to lay down your life for a love that would lay down his life. And we're going to spend the next couple of minutes. I want you to sit in it. I want you to sit with it. Micah, can you bring up the picture of the water? The beams, his chambers, that cement to God. Cast all that you would think might be good into the sea and grab a hold of the only one who could satisfy. I want to invite the praise team to come back up. We're just going to sit here for a couple of minutes. You and Jesus. If you need to stand, stand. You need to sit, sit. You need to kneel, kneel. You need to lay prostrate. Lay prostrate, but may the posture of your heart be a command to your soul to lay down before a Lord that loves this way.